Minnesota is home to two of the most livable cities, the most beautiful natural scenery, and one of the most industrious creative cultures in the world. In recent years, a thriving democracy of checks, balances, and an adversarial media have been replaced by political rivalries and corrupt officials more focused on delivering for donors and interest groups than honoring the public trust. Increasingly, local media seems to be in lockstep with this enterprise. In the spring of 2020, this system broke down and sent shockwaves throughout the country. Minnesotans Ask is not about politics. It is about the breakdown in transparency and accountability to the public. We are asking what can be done to bring sustainable balance back to Minnesota government. Uh, hello, everyone. We are very, very pleased to have with us Chuck uh, Turchik, uh, who uh, has a very, very uh, uh, interesting and important uh, story to tell about his history of, of, of activism, uh, his concerns with good government, and his persistence uh, in, on the issues of good policing and good government in Minneapolis. Chuck, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Chuck, I have to start with at least, and you and I have never met before, right? That's correct. Uh, we only know each other by email, and, and I want our viewers to know that Chuck really caught our attention because somehow I became one of the recipients of Chuck's emails uh, to uh, city leadership, uh, uh, police department leadership, uh, and saw that Chuck was asking some really important questions. I did not seem to be getting any answers. Uh, and uh, I admired and was frankly somewhat amazed at Chuck's both the intelligence and persistence in raising these questions. And Chuck is the type of voice that we want, I think, Val, uh, to get out there because uh, people may or may not agree with Chuck, but I'm pretty certain that virtually everyone that watches this program today will agree that Chuck has some very important things to say uh, that most people haven't heard. Uh, so we're going to start almost actually uh, about 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago, because uh, I think that it'd be interesting to the to the viewers, Chuck. You were uh, very outspoken in your opposition to the Vietnam War 50 years ago. Yes, that's correct. I was part of the anti-war movement that was called the draft resistance movement, where young men who were called for induction would refuse uh, induction into the military. Some even didn't cooperate more by turning in their draft cards, uh, refusing all cooperation, didn't accept uh, deferments, a student deferment while in school, for example. So I became involved in the draft resistance movement. Eventually I refused induction. And then I progressed to uh, more aggressive tactics such as trying to throw sand into the machinery of the war by destroying draft files. And in February, on February 28th, March 1st, that night of 1970, all of the 1A files, that is the files of people who are eligible for immediate induction into the Army, were destroyed in all of the Hennepin County, the Ramsey County, 
and the state headquarters of the Selective Service System. Uh, three different places. Two of the sites were in the post office building in St. Paul, and the other site was in downtown Minneapolis. And I was a part of that group, and four of us, four of the some 22 people who participated in that surfaced and claimed moral and political responsibility at a rally at Kaufman Union six days later so that we could talk to people and explain why we thought this action was uh, justified and necessary. No one ever got arrested for that. No one ever got questioned by the FBI for that. Uh, so we intended to keep doing it. And another group formed. Uh, and on July 10th and 11th, five draft boards in outstate Minnesota, Faribault, Wabasha, Winona, Little Falls, and Alexandria uh, were going to be raided. One of them got called off. One was successful. And at the other three places, eight of us were arrested and the media started referring to us as the Minnesota Eight. So just to get this out there, as everybody knows, uh, you did end up being prosecuted uh, as a part of that. And uh, right. as I understand it, Daniel Ellsberg was actually one of the witnesses in one of those trials. Yeah, that's correct. This is He was looking for a, a good place where he could release the Pentagon Papers. He was this secret study that had been uh, done by the Defense Department and the RAND Corporation about the United States involvement in Vietnam from 1945 to 1967. And he was having trouble finding media people. He was having trouble finding anyone in Congress who would release it on the floor of one of the houses. So he thought, what better place than in a courtroom where he would be sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to release these documents. So he thought he could, he, he thought he could release him during one of the trials, but the judge cut him off when he became critical of the administration, so he didn't get to release him. But Four and a half, five, five months later, he did release them in June, June through the New York Times. So I look at that, Chuck, and, 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 and not knowing you and never having met you before this conversation, uh, uh, jumped to maybe a, a conclusion that uh, it, it's somehow in your blood to be, be active and uh, advocate uh, for things you care about. Is that something you've really uh, followed your whole life? Have you been pretty active in civic affairs? I've been often on active. I've uh, when things stir me, I get get involved. Uh, I guess you could say pretty much I've been an activist off and on for most of my life. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we have renewed respect for the right kind of activism, and and activism that holds people in high places accountable is never more needed. Uh, I would wouldn't you say, Val? It, you, absolutely, it's, it's the whole purpose of our being here. So Chuck, I you know I I just I want us to start um, with when when did you become involved in uh, in the review of of uh, policing and best uh, practices in Minneapolis? When did you start uh, being a student and being active on those issues? I first started in the early nineteen nineties. There were two of us citizen observers who started attending the meetings of the Civilian Review Authority, which had just been formed, I think, in 1990, maybe 1991, after a couple of uh, high-profile incidents in Minneapolis. Uh, one of the other person was a woman from Women Against Military Madness, and we didn't do it together, but we both found ourselves attending the monthly meetings of the Civilian Review Authority Board 
making suggestions during the public comment portion of those meetings. Some of the suggestions they agreed to, many of the suggestions they did not. And I attended those meetings for about four years. And then I didn't have much other involvement on police-related issues in Minneapolis until I started attending Civilian Review Authority board meetings again in about 2008. And I've been attending the Civilian Review Authority or the subsequent organization, the subsequent entity that was created in 2012, the Police Conduct Oversight Commission. I've been attending those meetings pretty much on a monthly basis ever since. So are you currently on any of these boards? No. And after I had attended the Civilian Review Authority board meetings in for four years in the early 1990s, one of the board members suggested, and it had never occurred to me, that I should apply for an opening on the board. And in fact, two of them, one from the left side of the political spectrum on the board and one from the right side of the political spectrum on the board made that same suggestion to me. So I applied, and at that time, the city's the city council's committee invited all of the applicants in for a hearing, and the only two applicants who didn't show up for that hearing were the two who got appointed. Apparently, they knew <laughs> in advance they were going to get appointed. One of them was the campaign manager for the council president, Jackie Cherry Holmes. His name was Brian Gorecki. He lasted on the Civilian Review Authority board for about six months and then left and was never heard from again on police-related uh, issues in the city. The other was a metro Metropolitan State uh, professor, a philosophy professor who had delved into criminal justice issues and police accountability issues. He stayed on for a couple of years, but that was my success in applying for the CRA board. Then when the PCOC, the Police Conduct Oversight Commission, was uh, instituted in 2013, I applied for that as well, but I was told I didn't make the first cut in that in that in those applications. So oh, honestly, Chuck, you've probably been able to do more from, from the outside. outside. Well, <laughs> haven't had a whole lot of success, but they know I exist, I think. I, I, think, I think that's, that's success. success. Uh, and, and the, the passion, passion that you have for showing up, up and they, they know, know that, that you're watching, watching that's, that's important. important. It's really important, Chuck. But you know, you're you're uh, raising something, and of course, as you know, I was on the city council from two th 1998 to 2009. I was probably guilty of this myself. These positions are appointed by the city council, and the truth is that we end up appointing people we know and who we like, and who maybe that's not necessarily a malevolent motivation, but you know, uh, we we feel they won't maybe be overly critical, at least of us, just kind of the way politics works. So isn't that maybe part of the problem a bit here, that, that we have these citizen boards, but um, ultimately those who appoint them uh, and to whom they owe their positions are the ones that ultimately they're holding accountable. The weird thing with the police uh, members is in all of the monthly meetings that I have attended, which I say is most of them since it was formed in 2013, or that first started meeting in 2013, I have never seen an appointed, uh, a new commission member appointed who has ever attended a previous meeting of that commission. Uh -huh. It seems like they try to, uh, if you show any interest in the commission in advance, you're not going to be appointed. And that may be because the Civilian Review Authority caused problems they were issuing public reports that the media was glomming onto that were critical of the chief of police 
they were issuing these, uh, not monthly reports, yearly reports. They were called the Participation and Performance Review of the Chief documents because the ordinance gave them uh, the authority to participate in the annual reviews the chief was, was given. And the mayor never invited the CRA board into those conversations. So they started issuing their reports on their own. Some of them were favorable. They were done various factors. They were giving the chief credit, but some of them were critical. And of course the media loved this when one city agency was criticizing another city agency. And so that may be why the uh, Police Conduct Oversight Commission members, all of the appointees have had no involvement on police-related issues, or at least on police accountability-related issues in the city since that time. So Chuck, it's let me ask you, from your standpoint, uh, has the information about police misconduct, uh, about the overall performance of the department, uh, evaluations of the chief, um, use of force discussions, has that become more or less transparent over the last 10 years? Well, there's all sorts of uh, restrictions. The Data Practices Act uh, in the state of Minnesota is, is a major barrier for misconduct cases unless it, uh, it reaches the end of the process after all the internal uh, appeals that the officers are entitled to, plus the state arbitration system. And it has to reach the end of that process with discipline being imposed before the particulars of any case can be re revealed to the public with identifying information of who the officer is. So there are all such restrictions. But lately, the police department has been uh, releasing more data, I think, on their various portals online as uh, uh, aggregate data of cases uh, we, there's still a very opaque process that occurs within the Minneapolis Police Department after the, uh, the, the agency that, uh, conducts these, uh, uh, the agency that deals with complaints uh, of officer misconduct now is called the Office of Police Conduct Review, and they have a combined citizen and police officer panel two of each who decide each case that gets that far in the process, whether they're going to recommend that merit be found with respect to a particular allegation or not. And, but after they make that decision, it goes to the internal process within the police department, which is an internal affairs unit. And there's a separate discipline panel there. And that process has been totally non-transparent. We have no idea what goes on in there. And they could come up with a different recommendation than the uh, uh, police conduct review panel came up with. Uh, I don't, I, I, yeah, that, that bothers me tremendously. So when they talk about transparency, there are aspects of it that are transparent. There are aspects that can't be transparent because of the state law. And there are aspects that are uh, totally untransparent. Chuck, how, how do you, you see, see that, that changing, changing with, with the, the recent um, vote, vote to move, move communications to the city council versus the police department? Well, the city council itself, in making its proposal, this charter member proposal, uh, developed that entirely in secret themselves. So I have no, I have no great faith when it comes to transparency in the Minneapolis City Council. Uh, they, in fact, one of their members told the Charter Commission, when the Charter Commission was reviewing that proposal, 
uh, one of the, the five authors uh, appeared before the Charter Commission in one of their meetings. And one of the authors of that proposal told the Charter Commission they did not consult with the chief of police or the mayor in developing their charter amendment proposal. So I, Interesting. and they, they did say, or one of the, the council members, one of the authors did say they, they talked to community representatives, but it turned out the community representatives they talked to were the three groups that were pushing uh, police abolition, the police department's abolition, MPD 150, uh, Reclaim the Block and the Black Visions Collective. They didn't consult with anyone who was opposed to the abolition of the police department. Well, and so that's the end of our transparency. Uh, um, yeah. yeah. Not to be all too small. Are, are, a lot, a lot of, those of those aren't, aren't even comprised of all community, community members, members are, they? are they? Oh, of course not. They're not even uh, comprised of all community members who represent different segments. For example, the African-American community is, was split on that proposal. But yeah, the council, yeah. by their own admission, only consulted with people who favored the proposal that they they had going into it. So it was all uh, it, it was all it, I mean, it, the consultation with the people they consulted with was all for show, in my opinion. So Chuck, I want to get into some of the details, but but I, I from reading what you've written, from talking to Val, my I suspect that the three of us would generally agree with the fact that. Um, there are definitely issues with use of force. There is definitely a history uh, to policing in this country that's tainted uh, by racism in the past. However, um, it's also true uh, that there are many police departments um, who have seen significant changes in their culture. Uh, I'm going to put out there that I work with police every day. That's what I do. I'm a prosecutor. I at times have worked with the Minneapolis police. Uh, and this notion to me that we can change the policing model and leave the police out of the discussion, I know you've raised that. Um, that doesn't seem tenable to me. It, 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 it seems like whatever change is going to happen, however difficult that may be in changing cultures and accountability, that somehow we have to figure out how to engage with uh, members of the department we're trying to change, don't we? Absolutely. Uh, for example, there was recent demonstration in Hugo, Minnesota, and Bob Kroll, the president of the police union called the Federation of Minneapolis Police Officers, or it might be the Minneapolis Federation of Police Officers. I always get the words in the wrong order. Uh, has become a focus. Everyone's saying Bob Kroll should resign. And of course, he was elected three times by substantial numbers of the uh, Minneapolis Police Department. Over 400, uh, in each of the three elections, he got over 400 votes. Uh, and the other, the second place candidate got in the 100s. So, uh, and it might be that just, they just know he'll have their back. They might, might be that they don't subscribe to his views about aggressive policing. That might not be the case. But uh, I even suggested uh, to the Charter Commission there, they were talking about who they were going to bring in in their continuing process of evaluating. They're still evaluating this charter amendment for the next uh, 90 days or so, more than 90 days, to come up with uh, their recommendation on it. And I suggested to them that, you know, the, the police officers, the rank and file officers 
who regardless of what you think of Bob Kroll's leadership of the union, he is, he is the pre, he was the elected president of the union. You ought to hear from his his point of point of view as well. And I'm no big fan of Bob Kroll, but I think he might have some some things to say that would surprise them. So this focus on if we could only get rid of Bob Kroll, everything would be resolved. I, I just think that's a short-sighted, short-sighted solution. So, you know, this is the way I look at that, Chuck. Uh, we don't elect Bob Kroll. In fact, as you just said, it's rightly the police officers that elect Bob Kroll. We elect a mayor and a city council. Uh, and yet what seems really odd to me, frankly, is there seems to be still pretty high ratings and historically have, you know, people have continued to be reelected um, who have run this city. Um, so there seems to be this disconnect because to me, it seems like if democracy is going to work, it's the people we elect, we have to be able to hold accountable. Uh, and yet we haven't done that historically in Minneapolis. And I, I, shared some thoughts of mine a while back, uh, things that maybe I could have done differently when I was there. Uh, but it seems like we're giving the elected officials to be really blunt, both current and former, almost a free pass to saying that this is something out of their control and somehow they need a charter change. And um, that seems odd to me because I, I don't know how I can change things unless I can change it at the ballot box. And if I'm being told that by city council and mayor can't really be held accountable for this. What is what am I to do what, as a citizen? I, I can't select um, police chiefs. I can't select union chiefs. That's where I think so much of your work goes to is is where is the action and, and so often the inaction of the folks that we elect to represent us. I couldn't agree more. I a couple of years ago, uh, I started asking questions about a study that was done by the. Department of Justice, a division within the Department of Justice called the Office of Justice Programs, and a division within the Office of Justice Programs called the Diagnostic Center. Uh, they were called in in 2013 or 2014 to do a study of accountability pro uh, uh, procedures within the Minneapolis Police Department. They finished their study in January of 2015. The city accepted all of the recommendations uh, went public, uh, had a press conference, the mayor and the chief of police then, Janae Harteau, and they formed uh, implementation committees to come up with more specific recommendations on how to implement the recommendations of the Office of Justice Program study. And uh, those implementation committees were composed of city council members, members of the police department administration, uh, community members, citizens who volunteered their time and effort in this process, and city council members and city staff as well. And some of those committees met for over a year. And in the middle of 2018, I, I started to ask myself, whatever came with the implementation of those recommendations of the Department of Justice study that the city invited to have done, and it wasn't in response to any high-profile incident. It was just a proactive Let's have the uh, Department of Justice examine our accountability procedures in the Minneapolis Police Department. So I started asking, and I started, I didn't start with elected officials. I just started with the monthly meetings I was going to of the Police Conduct Oversight Commission. I asked them, maybe you should ask the city officials, ask the city council or the mayor or the chief of police, whatever happened with the implementation of those recommendations. 
And uh, a month, uh, two weeks later, after the PCOC was, didn't seem to be interested, they were silent as to my suggestion, uh, I wrote an email to the chief of police. This was in August of uh, 2018. Finally, I took it to the city council's public safety and emergency management committee. I asked them, all I was asking them to do, nothing more, was to publicly ask whatever happened with this program. And total silence. Not one of them would, add, they didn't have to expend any money. They didn't have to expend any staff time. Just ask that question publicly. Ask it either of the mayor or the chief of police. They say, well, the chief of police in past, uh, past administrations refused to come to their, their committee meetings. But Chief Arredondo was more than willing to come to the council's public safety Chuck, committee meeting. Chuck, I think that's why and I think they never so... would ask that question. They, uh, if I could just finish this, until finally two years later, I was on them badgering them for two years. Why don't you ask this question? It's kind of important. When you call in the Justice Department, the Federal Justice Department to do a study, and, uh, and when you involve all these citizens' time and effort on this study, on the implementation of the study. Finally, this July, Cam Gordon asked the chief, whatever happened with that? And the chief said, oh, that kind of dissolved because there was a change in administrations in Washington, D.C. Well, a year earlier, That's his great. deputy chief had told the Police Conduct Oversight Commission, no, it hadn't dissolved. But they were just... Uh, they had dropped the ball in, uh, in, in implementing this, and he promised the Police Conduct Oversight Commission, promised he would get back to them in May of 2019. So far, he hasn't got back to them, and they haven't pressed him on it. So you get all these contradictory stories. That's why I think it's so disingenuous when we get the story that they've done everything they can. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean... Council member Jeremiah Ellison, in a press conference they had, the council held when they were uh, rolling out their charter amendment proposal, said, well, back in 2012, he got the year wrong. It was, the study was completed in 2015. Uh, the Justice Department, people are talking about the Justice Department study, which basically gave the Minneapolis Police Department, quote, a clean bill of health. And he said that twice. He said that in a city council meeting and he said it in a press conference. I wrote him and said, what study 2012 study are you talking about? If it's the Office of Justice Program study, I sent you a copy of that study. It does not give the Minneapolis Police Department a clean bill of health. It makes 20 some recommendations for improvement in the accountability procedures within that department. So I don't know what, where you're coming from when you say this. I never heard back. I wrote Council Member Ellison three different emails on this topic, and I've never heard back from him. So Chuck, I, I, I read that report, uh, and uh, uh, perhaps there's a way we can put that up or a link to that so folks can take a look at it. Absolutely. Uh, and as you said, there are a number of recommendations in page 26 to 28 of the report I want to use one as an example. Uh, I was on the council my last year, the council in 2009. I remember the conversation where we talked about early warning systems for police discipline. Yes. Uh, some might now hear that that's a new idea because that's some of what we're hearing. It's actually an idea that was 11 years ago uh, is when the conversation started. Uh, but to your point, uh, the could I just interrupt for a minute there, sure, uh, Paul? Sure, go ahead. Councilmember Gordon claims that uh, they heard about early uh, early warning systems in 2005, even. 
Well, that's probably true. But, but in terms of the system, at least in 2009, it, it was represented to me as a council member, and I've been gone almost 11 years ago, that that was now going to be a real thing. It was going to happen. Uh, and, and to your point about the audit, when I read it, it said that the early warning system is not aligned with model practices. Uh, it said that there is an over-reliance on, on coaching as opposed to discipline. Uh, to give some numbers here from that report, these are from 2008 to 2013. Uh, 418 times the only consequence was coaching. Uh, 76 times the consequence was a reprimand letter. Uh, over a five-year period, there were 60 suspensions and 12 terminations and zero demotions. Now, I don't know the merits of any of those individual cases, but at least those numbers raise, I would think, Chuck, some legitimate questions about whether the early warning system was really used used as a, a way of, of, of disciplining uh, what we what we tend to think of in any line of work could be true in my work and anyone's work progressive discipline in other words it doesn't look like the system was really being used as most employers might use a you know a progressive discipline program is is that a fair summary well, I don't keep up with the statistics as much as some sure. of the people in groups like Communities United Against Police Brutality. But I, I guess but more, to, more to the point of, of the system itself. The but I, but on, on the system itself, yeah. I remember attending a Civilian Review Authority board meeting in 2010 where a representative of the police department came in and talked about their new early, early warning system. That's what they called it in that era. Now it's called an early intervention system. And... Then I recall it was either in December of 2016, I think it might have been December of 2018, there was a presentation before the Police Conduct Oversight Commission about their new early intervention. They, they keep coming up with these, these new early warning system, early intervention systems, and they never seem to be, to be uh, instituted or implemented. Uh, the chief now says that, well, uh, we haven't been able to uh, find a, a vendor for our the um, what did he call it the uh, the daily uh, what's it called when it's an ongoing uh, I forgot what the words he used uh, but the they they thought that the Minneapolis Foundation was going to pay for this vendor that uh, former Mayor Ryback was one of the two founding board members of this thing. So the Minneapolis Foundation, obviously, when that was revealed to the public, withdrew. And Minneapolis is looking for this, for still looking for this uh, outfit to do some kind of uh, automated data on early intervention systems. But the, the New York Times recently had an article, and not maybe not so recently, maybe a couple months ago, about Officer Chauvin, and they went back into his history, his history before he joined the police department, his history since he joined the police department, not so much of the complaints, but just what other officers had noticed about uh, uh, Officer Chauvin. And clearly there were some signs there that an early intervention system would have caught. And it's just, it's just incredible how the Minneapolis Police Department is constantly instituting a new early intervention system, and it never seems to be get to get put in place. So, Chuck, one of the things that 
I've thought a lot about, again, because I work with law enforcement, but again, I think we can all relate to this. Um, if you're not seeing officers that need to be disciplined, disciplined, um, that affects your work on a daily basis. In other words, if, if there are individuals, however many, you know, that whether you're a teacher, a police officer, any line of work, um, and you know that, that there's not going to be any discipline for misbehavior, that has a negative effect on how you do your job. And, and I, I think that's a piece of this that's been missing. There's, a, to me, an unfairness to, to all of the, uh, the good officers uh, who maybe have to work with people they shouldn't, frankly, have to work with because the discipline system isn't working. Yeah, and this starts at the top. Uh, I, I know that uh, it's very difficult to get officers to inform on their, uh, their colleagues. But uh, when you were on the council, when uh, the last chief that, that was in place when you were on the council, Chief Tim Dolan was routinely sending cases to the Civilian Review Authority Board saying that he disagreed with the uh, findings of facts as determined by the Civilian Review Authority Board, and that was why he was not issuing discipline. When the ordinance at that time was written that the police chief shall base his disciplinary decisions on the findings of fact as determined by the Civilian Review Authority Board. Yeah. And when the, when the chief at that time was not issuing discipline in the case that the board had sustained, he was required to uh, send reasons for his uh, non-disciplinary decision. And he was routinely sending, he was like poking his, his, poking his thumb in the eye of the Civilian Review Authority Board by using the ordinance language only by adding his disagreement with the facts as they, as they determined. But we're well, all accountable, Chuck, to interrupt you this, myself, wait, perhaps wait, as well. Could I just finish this? Could I just finish the story? Yeah, but this was clearly a violation of the ordinance by the chief. But who do and we... I was a witness to it. I was a witness sure. to it because I would read these reports coming out of the, the Civilian Review Authority. So I filed a complaint against the chief for violating the ordinance. Oh, interesting. How did that turn out? The director of the Civil Rights Department, Velma Corbel, still the director of the Civil Rights Department, herself violated the ordinance. The ordinance required that the Civil Rights Department director had no say in the substantive handling of cases by the uh, Civilian Review Authority agency. The Civilian Review Authority before then had been a separate independent agency and had just recently been moved into the Civil Rights Department. And there was a firewall between the Civil Rights staff and the Civilian Review Authority staff. She was to have no say in how cases are handled. And I have an email, when I, when I, which I got from a data practices request, in which she says that she advised the director of the Civilian Review Authority at that time, a fellow named Lee Reed, who's now doing similar work in Atlanta because he left Minnesota. Uh, she advised him to close the case and send it to the mayor's office. He thought it was a legitimate case that the chief as an officer in the city of Minneapolis could be held accountable for violating a city ordinance. And that was an act of misconduct. But the head of the Civil Rights Department broke the law, broke the firewall, and my case got closed and sent to the mayor's office, to Mayor Ryback's office, who was equally uh, dismissive 
of uh, my complaint against uh, Chief Dolan at the time. So I'm sorry I went on so long with that. No, no, story. no, that is okay. So, it, you know, I, I think all of this goes to whether it's Civilian Review Authority, the Police Conduct Oversight Commission. We seem to have had in Minneapolis, um, I don't know if it's almost, <laughs> it's almost fraudulent, frankly. We, we have these, maybe it is fraudulent. We, we, we have these bodies of civilian input um, that are seem to be completely unsupported by the council and mayor. Um, the council and mayor aren't involved or invested in them. Um, as you're saying, the ordinance provisions are routinely ignored. So we have really this veneer of civilian oversight. Um, and that's all it is. It, 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 it really, it, and it seems to me, isn't that up to the mayor and the council to to actually effectuate their ordinances and, and, and to actually empower these citizens and, and to hold the elect, uh, hold the appointed officials accountable for these processes that the council themselves established. That, that seems like where the disconnect is. Yeah. As, as part of my efforts to get the uh, city council to just merely ask what happened with the office of, happened with the office of justice program recommendations, I did have a meeting in the summer of July of, of 2019. I think it might have been in June, with the head, the chair of the public safety committee, Alondra Cano. And in my meeting with her, I referred to the police conduct oversight commission, which was where I had started with these requests back in 2018. And I, she said, "Oh, is that a manager Jafar's group?" And a manager Jafar is the director of the office of police conduct review, the city agency that takes in and investigates complaints against officers. They're not the civilian group, the Police Conduct Oversight Commission, that makes recommendations for changes in police policy. And I said, no, that, that that's the OPCR, the Office of Police Conduct Review. The PCOC is, uh, is chaired by Andrea Brown. Now, this was in 2019. Andrea Brown was the first chair of the Police Conduct Oversight Commission appointed in the fall of 2013. So she had been the chair at that time for almost six years. There are very few citizen advisory boards and commissions that reported or within the jurisdiction of the Public Safety and Emergency Management Committee. I don't know if there is another one besides the uh, Police Conduct Oversight Commission. Oh, Chuck, how well did she know Andrea? She did not know the name Andrea Brown. She didn't know the name of the person she had confirmed for the last six years to be the chair of the Civilian Oversight Commission in the city of Minneapolis. And she was the chair of the Public Safety Committee. So I suggested the name of the vice chair. I said, maybe you've heard the name Laura Westfall. She hadn't heard that name either. I suggested a third name, Jennifer Singleton, a woman who had been on it and then left because uh, of other commitments. And so she I, did I, I have to interrupt, you. I have that to interrupt you, I'm sorry. You're, but there is a disconnect between the city. Yeah, you're, you're telling Val and, and me that, that that the chair of the city's public safety committee, uh, who along with others has, of course, proposed this charter amendment, uh, uh, potentially abolishing or at least defunding police. It's obviously a big issue for Councilmember Cano. How, how is it possible that she's been there as long as she has without even being aware of the primary citizens group overseeing police misconduct. That, that just seems impossible. 
But they've done everything, Paul. They've done everything they can. So yeah, they've exhausted every avenue. So Chuck, I, I you know, we, we had this study in, in 2015, and, and I worked with with uh, you know uh, then Mayor Hodges, and when I worked with her, she was a council member, and I think it was well intended this this audit, um, and uh, the audit also talked about so many of the things that we're hearing right now. It talked about strength yeah. police community relations. It talked about a yes. concept that I think is incredibly important. It talked about what they call procedural justice. And I and I found that very interesting. It talked about the need for respect, the need for neutrality, uh, understanding, and helpfulness. It it actually that report advocated for exactly the kind of change in the police culture that we're now hearing the council members talk about. And and so again, it seems strange to me that we're hearing these ideas as new when they were seemed to have all been in this report five years ago. The, the Minneapolis Police Department did institute procedural justice training. Uh, procedural justice for, to me is just a fancy word for respect for the citizens that you're interacting with. Sure. Uh, they did institute procedural justice training when the Minneapolis Police Department was part of the National Initiative on Building Community Trust and Police or something like that. I forgot what the title is. That was another thing besides this Office of Justice Program study that the MPD participated in. And they did institute procedural justice training. Uh, and they also introduced, uh, what, did they, what, did, what was it called, the anti-racist training that they have? It's called uh, implicit bias training, which some people have questioned how, how long-term the effects are of that implicit bias training. There's a professor at the University of Minnesota uh, Professor Borgida, who questions whether they have long-term effects or just uh, relatively short-term effects. So but those, I, are, I, those I are the two projects the MPT did implement as a result of being part of this national initiative process. So I give them credit for that. Well, well that's good. How, how much of those discussions happened in any public hearing? Uh, how often did the, 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 the public safety commi committee uh, had these kinds of reviews? Uh, how often did they invite members of the public to come in and speak? Uh, it seems as though most of these conversations were not really public. That, that are there, but well, about that? In the Office of Justice programs, they talked to, to stakeholders, which included community people. The community people that they talked to in, in for the Office of Justice programs, the 2015 study, uh, were there were three groups they mentioned clergy they mentioned uh citizen activists i don't know who those were and they mentioned the chief's citizen advisory council hmm. the chief citizens advisory council is a hand-picked group of people the chief selects it's not an official body it's a group that meets in secret hmm. that about five or six years ago i suggested that the meetings be open and a compromise was worked out so that the uh, minutes of their meetings would be posted. Since that time, they now they no longer even post the minutes of those meetings. This is the group the Office of Justice Programs met with, and this is the group that the National Initiative folks, when they came in for their first uh, uh, meetings with community members in the city of Minneapolis, they did not meet with the Police Conduct Oversight Commission, the official 
appointed group of oversight people of, of, of civilian oversight by the city council and the mayor. They met and sat with this handpicked group uh, of the chief's uh, citizens advisory council. So, and it's all done behind closed doors. It was all done in secret. Uh, it's appalling. So, Val, I know you've seen this in other areas. It seems as though we have this bubbling over of public concern on so many issues because there's no opportunity to, on a regular basis, to, to publicly have a chance to interact with uh, and to address concerns to the people that are elected. There's no bigger issue, it seems. Obviously, there's no bigger no. issue right now, and maybe never is a bigger issue than public safety in the city, and yet there seems to be no public hearings, no public discussions among the elected officials. No, and, and honestly, Paul, um, with the exception of people like Chuck, most people don't take the time to even pay attention to what's going on. It, it, yeah, and, and that's again, Chuck, but we have so much admiration for your persistence here. I, I, I want to move us forward a yeah, few just years. just a few minutes to left. Tragic death, yes, to the tragic death of Justine Damon. Um, which of course the there was international press coverage of this tragedy, uh, and yet I know you followed this. The judge, I want you to speak to this. The the the, the judge made some public comments that related serious concerns of the members of the jurors relating to training and 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 what had been done by the people in power in Minneapolis to address these issues. Uh, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, at the sentencing of Muhammad Noor for the killing of Justine Damon, the judge opened her sentencing remarks with some very unusual comments. She, she said, these are the questions the jurors told me after the trial they felt hadn't been answered in the trial. And she listed a number of questions like, why are Minneapolis police officers so concerned about ambushes? Uh, why is... Uh, why was Officer Noor's partner, Matthew Herity's uh, main concern, as he testified in the trial, to come, his primary, his, he prioritized coming home safely rather than serving the community. And they had a number of questions like that. As you mentioned, what kind of training were these officers given? And she, she relayed all these questions that the jurors had at the beginning of her sentencing comments before she sentenced Mohammed Noor. And she, she said at the end of that, the jurors and the people of Minneapolis need and deserve answers. This was on June 7th of 2019. On June 9th of 2019, I set the, sent the transcript of that portion of her comments to the public safety committee members, all six of them. And what encouraging, them, encouraging them to respond. I've been, I badgered them for a year. Why doesn't one of you answer the, or ask the police department to answer, or ask the mayor to ask the police department to answer the judge's questions. Finally, a year after I started badgering them with this, and again on July 17th, one council member uh, asked, the, uh, asked Chief Arredondo, well, what were the lessons learned from the previous killings that we've had by Minneapolis police officers in the city? Especially, I was especially concerned with cases where the city uh, uh, entered into settlement agreements. Uh, what lessons could be learned from those? 
there's been no public discussion on any of the killings that the Minneapolis Police Department officers have engaged in over the last uh, dozen years or so about what were the lessons learned. No public discussion about that at all until oh. Camp Horton finally asked the chief this. And still the city has not responded to Judge Quaintance. I would prefer that the city tell Judge Quaintance out of respect for her, tell her, well, this isn't your jurisdiction. This isn't your business. That would show more more courtesy to her than their just utter silence for the last 14 months. So, Chuck, I want to ask you about your understanding of a lawsuit in 2010 that only now came to my attention. It involved the death, as I understand it, uh, of a, a man by the name of David Smith as a result, as I understand it, of a, of a chokehold. Is that correct? That's correct. It was at the YMCA in Minneapolis. The police were called. It might be one of those cases that will be held by, uh, by uh, mental health responders in the new era. I mean, he was clearly having a mental health crisis. Uh, it was on a basketball court, as I remember. And the police came in. I, I don't know the, the details other than that, but okay. they ended up putting him in a chokehold, and he, uh, he was killed. And it's so now we're fast-forwarding 10 years forward, uh, mm -hmm. and one of the questions I know you've continually asked is, what have we learned from what's happened before? But my understanding is that you've learned that there were actually requirements of additional and new training on chokeholds that were ordered as part of the city settlement way back in 2010. Yeah, yeah, the family sued civilly and the, the city agreed to a settlement. And one of the provisions in the settlement required some new kind of training for Minneapolis police officers when it came to uh, neck restraints. And now that issue has come up again because there is there have been some intimations that maybe the city did not institute that provision of the settlement agreement adequately and that might have led to uh, Officer Chauvin thinking he was using the proper technique when he had his knee on George Floyd's neck. So 2012, the Star Tribune reported that in 2012, whether it was an update or a new policy, uh, that it is in the written, uh, it has been until only recently in the Minneapolis Police Department's uh, uh, authorized use of force uh, that both neck restraint and even unconscious neck restraint uh, mm -hmm. if deemed necessary by an officer, was actually a legal use of force uh, within the Minneapolis Police Department. Is that your understanding? Yeah, that's, that is my understanding. And I'm sure that Officer Chauvin's attorney is going to raise this issue that uh, he believed, according to the training he received, that he was doing what was proper. Of course, to be fair, the response I think the city folks have made, well, no one could ever interpret that policy for the the hideous you know uh, murder of george floyd when he was completely incapacitated but still the fact that we had that still on the books um do you know was was that ever discussed by the city council was it ever discussed by the civilian review authority it, was there ever any public conversation to your knowledge about the use of chokeholds uh, in the no. Minneapolis Police Department between 2010 and 2020? No, not at all. In fact, as I said earlier, I have never seen the Public Safety Committee. It's had various titles 
uh, in the various uh, terms of uh, city council members. But I have never seen any discussion about previous cases. They, they must have these discussions when they meet in closed session to have their settlement, uh, the settlement, settlement discussions. So uh, I'm sure they have discussed these sorts of things, but never in public. And, and Chuck, one of the things that concerned me more and more when I was on the council was the, the use of the uh, attorney-client privilege mm -hmm. uh, to not only discuss sensitive settlement matters, uh, but to talk about the issues of use of force by law enforcement in such a way that they're never discussed publicly. Yeah, uh, and now they're going to, the city council is recommending that we have this public engagement about how to reimagine public safety in the city. But I have told them, look, you have information that helps in that discussion that the public doesn't have, that I don't have. You know what went on in those settlement discussions in private. You should tell us what lessons were learned in there. You should tell us what the city attorney told you that she or he thought, it was a she for most of that time, Susan Siegel, what she thought the, uh, the uh, complainer or the plaintiff could prove in those cases in court. What allegations she thought the city uh, did, did not have much much of a leg to stand on, then we will know what lessons can be learned from these tragedies that have happened in the past. And then we will know how, how better to reimagine public safety in the city. Otherwise, the city council has the information. We don't. Why should we be involved in the discussion? Yeah, they've, they've also been the only ones who were aware that the neck restraint policy was in place any, in the first place. Like, that's why it was so disturbing for people to see it happening to George Floyd. Yeah, because I don't know to what I don't know that. actually. I actually don't know to what extent the policy and procedure manual, the use of force provisions in there, did change as a result of the Smith settlement. Maybe those did change, but I'm not aware of. I don't know that that information. Well, we we know that the council did act quickly after the murder of George Floyd to mm -hmm. outlaw chokeholds. Yep. But we also yep. know, based on some reporting that was done. Uh, by NBC, I believe, that in the five years leading up to the death of, of George Floyd, uh, over 200 times Minneapolis police officers used chokeholds, and that on 44 of those occasions, the reporting was that those chokeholds were used in such a way as to render the suspect unconscious. Yeah, those are shocking figures. I was not aware of those figures until I heard them from you, but they are certainly shocking. So to your knowledge, has, has, has there ever been any review of those incidents? Do we even know whether there's been any disciplinary action taken against any of the officers who previously used the same hole that was used on Officer Floyd? Well, I don't know of any, and my bet would be since that was within their training policies that they probably would not have, uh, would not have been brought up uh, with allegations of misconduct. Or disciplined. No one had ever videoed it before. No, that 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 that's the difference. We have the video. So Chuck, you have just been a beacon of a voice of someone who has said that the is the responsibility of any leader is to learn uh, and 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 to learn from what's gone wrong. And seems central to the message that you're telling us today is that Minneapolis has failed to not only failed to learn, but 
but it, it almost seems as though it hasn't even tried to learn from these previous tragedies. Yeah, I mean, it, and it just keeps, it, it just goes on and on. At the July 17th meeting of the city council, when council member Cam Gordon finally asked Chief uh, Arredondo about what lessons uh, have been learned from these past tragedies, the chief said, well, in the, in the Justine Damon one, who was killed by Mohammed Noor in 2017, we still don't have access to the, trans, the trial transcripts of that. So we haven't been able to complete our study of what lessons should be learned. Their internal study, it's always been an internal study within the Minneapolis Police Department. They have use of force reviews regularly. And so I, I checked around to see if those trial transcripts are available. I wrote an email to the uh, Court of Appeals and I heard back those trial transcripts have been available since December of 2019. So we still get stories about why the, the Minneapolis Police Department is not uh, ready yet to say what lessons were learned from a killing that happened back in 2017 that resulted in a settlement in 2019, in the middle of 2019, over a year ago. It, uh, it's it's mind-boggling how, slow, how slowly they move and how much is kept in secret. So everyone, of course, probably watching this program knows uh, the pretty high profile efforts of uh, the city council, I think a 12 to zero vote uh, to try to put on the ballot uh, a provision that would eliminate the requirement of a police department and um, at least purports to change some of the reporting structure more to the city council. Uh, but I know you've raised a city attorney letter in 2018, which seemed to indicate that the city council already had the authority it needed. Yes, there was a charter amendment proposal back in 2018 that wasn't as extensive as this one was. It didn't make an optional law enforcement division, but what it did do was change the charter uh the charter's given authority over the police department, the powers over the police department, who the police department reports to, from the mayor to a sort of a combined mayor and city council, but more, most of the power would be in the city council. And when that proposal was, uh, was made and it went to the charter commission, the charter commission returned it with a report recommending that it be rejected. Right around that time, the city council itself asked for a, a a legal memorandum from the city attorney's office and the city attorney, I think it was the city council who, who, who asked for that city attorney's opinion, not the charter commission, but the city attorney's opinion was that all of the powers that the Minneapolis city council has over any other department, it has in the current charter over the police department. It doesn't have a uh, power over internal uh, policies each department head has, has control over those, but it does have control over the, the citywide policies uh, with regard to every one of these departments. Now, I, the city council says, well, we tried to get, uh, there was a, an incident with tasers where the Minneapolis uh, Police Department eliminated from their policy and procedure manual some provisions that had to do with the use of tasers and the the city council said we couldn't get any information about that. We couldn't get the police chief to come in and, and uh, talk to our committee about that. So the city council disagrees with that city attorney's opinion 
But uh, this is one of the issues the Charter Commission is going to be looking at it over the next 90 days. So just by way of comment, I have the original 1867 city charter because as maybe you and Val both know, I, I tried to change what I consider a very, and I think this, what we're talking about here shows that there's a very poor management system. Things just don't happen. Uh, nothing is followed up on. Um, nope. uh, and, and that's what the effort was about. But because I have that, the little known fact is that the original charter had the language that now they're talking so much about. And at the time that charter was written, there were four police officers. Uh, and literally when the city started, every time there was a new mayor, there were four new police officers. They just got new ones. So we're spending all of this time debating language uh, that dates back to 1867. Uh, so what, what I see us doing here, Chuck, I don't think any charter change is going to fix. As, as I talk to you and, and, and Val, I think you would agree, what's been missing is the central component of governing and managing. Um, and it just seems to me that no matter what we put in the charter, uh, if we continue to have uh, council members and potentially mayors that aren't learning from the past, uh, are, or even acknowledging it. Or acknowledging the past, um, getting recommendations and doing nothing with them. Uh, no charter change can fix things. Yeah, the city council, I mean, some of their proposals, I, I, I would support uh, some things that the police officers are sent, some 911 calls that police officers respond to might be better dealt with by other people. And uh, there is a movement across the country and cities to have a, a mental health co-responders sometimes where accompany police, company police officers to these calls. Sometimes uh, just mental health professionals uh, would respond to certain calls. And the city council could do all of that stuff, but they, they currently fund the police department uh, to a level of, I think it's a level of 880, although we only have about 850 officers and sworn officers now. And that's, that's about 150 more than the city charter currently would require. The city charter currently requires 0.0017 officers per resident. Or is it per thousand residents? No, per resident, 0.0017. And that comes out to about 730 officers in the Minneapolis Police Department. So the city council has millions of dollars they could have been using if that was their goal, and they haven't done it. Uh, they say, some of them say, well, if they make any moves toward uh, decreasing the number of officers or any, any movements toward exerting greater control over the Minneapolis Police Department, then the response times in their, uh, in their wards uh, all of a sudden go up. Now, I haven't seen any evidence of that, or I, they, they, I, I haven't seen data that they've reported showing that, that after one of them has made such a proposal that would seem to cut into the uh, Federation's power with respect to the, the number of officers in the police department or, or various other changes. Uh, so maybe, maybe some council member will put forward that evidence and, and show us that that indeed has been happening. And they, that, they say, is their reason why they're reluctant to make the changes that they can already make under the charter. 
I guess from what what seems to me is that rather than a charter change, what we need is accountability and transparency. Anytime that there is a fatality or something goes wrong, direction to change it, oversight by the city council, really the day-to-day -day management of things, which I always thought was really mostly the work of the city council. Yeah. Because you really are overseeing this operation. Yeah. And, and that's where it seems to me that things have fallen off the tracks, is that, that the people we elect are not... You're doing it, Chuck. You are. You're doing it. But what we need yeah. the people that are on the city council to be doing what you are doing. I'm doing it for, as, as I wrote to you earlier today, I'm doing it for another two and a half weeks. Then so you wrote, you wrote an email, and, and I want to kind of wrap up on this. Um, I don't. Let me ask you this. I think I have 200 emails from you, and that's just over the last like month and a half. <laughs> Think it's so I was, I was going to try to do the math, and, and they're all wonderful emails, and these are not one-line emails. These are very thorough, thoughtful emails. Super data-rich. You've got to be over 1,000, don't you think, over the last? No, I don't think so. You don't think it's so? Just, this summer, we had the killing of uh, George right. Floyd. I, it, it, I'm retired, and so I take courses at the University of Minnesota sure. to fill my time. They're free to audit for senior citizens. Okay. And so the semester ended, uh, the spring semester ended, right around the time of the killing of George Floyd. And all of a sudden, the police-related issues were at the forefront of the city council and the mayor. So I started writing emails, and I wasn't taking any classes in the summer. And my oh, yeah. laptop kept spitting out these emails to the people. Well, you, you wrote down, you wrote down in, in the email that I just got a half hour ago, and, and I wanted to just quote. Uh, this was to Mayor Fry and the chief and the city council. And, and you concluded your email by saying, and should you fail to do something, I can't stop my laptop for doing what it has to do. Yeah, it was my telling them there was good news. They were going to get fewer emails since fall semesters about to start and I'm signed up for five classes. And so my laptop takes break, I guess, during during the time when I'm taking classes. But I said, you know, you can't tell if uh, if you do something that's stupid or you don't do something you should be doing. Uh, these emails might might start up again. Who knows? So I'm hoping, laptop. you know, I'm I'm really hoping, Chuck, as we move forward, you start getting more responses to your emails. But but more than that, frankly, I'm hoping that those who we elect. Yeah, uh, start themselves asking the questions you're asking. Uh, these are such low bar, ex low bar questions. What can we learn from these tragedies? What happened to this Department of Justice study that we were so proud of? That the Department of Justice praised us for having committed leadership that we were in implementing these changes. I mean, these are not uh, these are not highfalutin questions. These are such low bar expectations. And I'm just shocked that no one's asking these questions on the city council itself, on the PCOC, and the mayor's office. I mean, it's, it's just very disappointing. And Val, you know, I want you to get a word in here too, but it seems to me that, that part of the political culture that challenges us at this moment is how easy slogans are yep. and how hard actually governing and managing really is. Yep. And so... I hope we have to be willing to do the hard work. Absolutely. And show up.
and listen and ask questions. Absolutely. And, and I'm hoping the people that, that watch this will demand answers to these kinds of questions. Um, and and uh, I, I certainly applaud so much of the activism, but somehow that has to also translate into how do we hold our elected officials accountable for the day-to-day -day decisions, the day-to-day -day management, um, um, learning, um, and, and, and holding their, their managers to account. That's what I hope people learn from this. That's the work Amen. that we've been doing. Amen. Agreed. Val, any final you, words Chuck, from you? I think Chuck has been just a wonderful guest. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, absolutely. No, this is super enlightening. Uh, I just, and, and so I think what we're going awe. to do is is we'll put up with this uh, a video some links to that Department of Justice report. Yep. Uh, perhaps some other links relating to the comments that Judge Quaintance made. Um, if we can find some other things, we perhaps will put that in, like the 2010 lawsuit. Absolutely. These are things, these are things yeah. that the public really, uh, those use of force reports, um, we'll, we'll find some links to, 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 so those that want to learn more can do that. Uh, Chuck, we wish you the best of luck. Uh, well, thank you for having me. We, we, we know you're going to keep watching, and we're glad for that, but I hope now a lot more people will be watching. Uh, ditto. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you Thank so much. You.